Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. And today we're talking about the 19th century British military surgeon, Dr. James Barry. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast and pay respects to their elders past and present. We recognize them as the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. We also have some content warnings before we start this episode. This episode contains, I would say, fairly mild discussions of general periotypical misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, racism, and colonialism. It will also contain misgendering in quotes, and there will also be brief mentions of imprisonment, dissection of human remains and grave robbery, death in childbirth, gun violence, and sex. If any of that sounds like something that you don't want to listen to, please feel free to skip this episode and listen to one of our other episodes. Lastly, I wanted to just say a few brief words about our sources before we get started. There have been a few biographies of James written over the last few decades. The one that I relied on the most was the most recent one, Michael Dupree's and Jeremy Dronfield's 2016 biography, Dr. James Barry, A Woman Ahead of Her Time. Off to a great start with that title. <laughs> yep. This is perhaps the most thoroughly researched biography that I have ever read for this podcast. Oh, just like in general. Yes. It does have a heavily narrative style, so it'll do that sort of thing about saying like, so-and-so was walking along the river in the cold January air, etc., which can often leave you quite uncertain about what is a fact and what is poetic license. But in this case, the footnoting was good enough that it mostly just didn't matter. Okay. Uh, which I have literally never encountered before. <laughs> That's nice. However, the narrative style did mean that when there was something that required conjecture, so when they weren't quite sure about an event or like someone's motivation for something, they were reluctant to put this kind of analysis of the primary sources into the text to try Mm -hmm. and figure out what it was that had happened. So they'd kind of relegate that kind of debate to the footnotes. This meant that the version of events that they decided – was most likely was more or less treated as a fact within the text of the book itself. And then following parts of the book would be based on the foundation of this event being a fact. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, that's unfortunately pretty standard biographical stuff. (laughs) It is. But in this case, and I realized that was kind of a bit vague because I didn't want to give you any examples just yet. But in this case, I feel that it gets kind of a bit more outlandish than is standard, especially from what I would expect for a biography that is of such like well-researched material generally Mm -hmm. you'll see what i mean pretty shortly we will get into this multiple times throughout this episode but you know i just wanted to flag the general trend ahead of time it should also be noted and is probably obvious from that title a woman ahead of her time that Dupree's and Dronfield unquestioningly understand James to have been a woman. They never really seek to to prove this or to argue this point, and instead they just sort of treat it as a given. As is probably clear from the title of this episode, this is going to be the first of two episodes on James, and we're going to be doing a deeper dive into James's gender and the way it's presented in these biographies in that one. So we'll kind of just leave it at that for now. But I also just wanted to make note of that. It will also come up multiple times throughout this episode. Mm. Lastly, I wanted to do our standard little pronoun disclaimer. (laughs) I feel this intro has really been a bingo card in and of itself, but that's okay. We're going to be referring to James by the name James and with he him pronouns throughout 
both of these episodes, although we will discuss his gender in more depth next episode. As I said, James lived his life as a man and he requested that he be buried in the sheets that he died in. It seems therefore pretty uncomplicated to conclude that he wanted to be remembered as such. As is our standard practice here, I also wanted to note that we will retain gendered language used in quotes, including pronouns, hence my content warning for misgendering within quotes. I also wanted to note that I've been selective in the way I have framed quotations in order to avoid his birth name. And although I've done my best to do this in a way that didn't obscure the original meaning or the intentions of the authors, I just wanted to make a note of it because that can get a little dicey. Yeah. So, James was born to Jeremiah and Marianne Bulkley, nay Barry, in Cork, Ireland. Jeremiah was a grocer and had a job at the city's warehouse, which is a place where goods are, like, inspected and graded. Is that like... W-E-I-G-H Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I guess that is kind of ambiguous. It's almost a pun, really. (laughs) Good job, 19th century cork. (laughs) Marianne was from a respectable family who had a handful of modest interests and properties, but were not significantly well off by this time. She had four older brothers, none of whom she was close with. By the time James was born, John had died, Patrick and Redmond had gone away to sea, and James had become a painter in London. So one of the brothers is also called James. One of the brothers is also called James. Okay, we'll look forward to that confusion throughout the episode. This is not a coincidence. I'll give you a little spoiler. Thankfully, the older James will die, like, pretty soon, (laughs) so it's fine. Good, good, good. Okay. Marianne and Jeremiah had married in 1782. They had a son called John in circa 1783-ish, and then James was born in 1789. We have no birth certificate for either John or James. Many such local records were destroyed in the Irish Civil War of 1922. This year of birth comes from a letter from James's mother written on the 14th of January 1805, in which James is mentioned as being but 15 years old. So because that's so early in the year, it gives us a pretty reliable indicator that he was born in 1789. Well, that's handy. Yeah. But we don't know when his birthday is, like, even a little bit. So. Oh, okay. Well, there goes that social media post I would have made. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the family's financial circumstances were quite uncertain, and Jeremiah had borrowed heavily to open their grocery store. In 1800, the Acts of Union were passed and Ireland became a part of Great Britain. One of the many, many effects of this was the dismissal of Catholics from the Wayhouse. So Jeremiah, who was Catholic, lost his job. Despite this, in 1801, the family borrowed more money to put John into an apprenticeship with a Dublin attorney. In 1803, two years into his apprenticeship, John fell in love with a Miss Ward, a woman clearly higher in social status than him, who had a fortune of £1,200. Is that a lot of pounds? Oh, yeah, it seems to be a lot of pounds. Yeah. <laughs> this is actually something that Dupree and will talk about a bit. It's like quite difficult to say in any straightforward, like, legitimate way mm. how much that would be in today. Yeah, Um, yeah. So, you know, like, it's certainly some money. Okay. Yeah. The match would have set him up quite well in life, but her brothers insisted that she not marry anyone who couldn't match her fortune, because I guess we're in a fairy tale. Uh, (laughs) Unless they passed three tests. Yes. (laughs) Answer these riddles three or give me 1,200 pounds. (laughs) Jeremiah sold some property and managed to raise the 1,200 pounds to give to John, but his debtors noticed and started to demand repayments from him. Marianne reached out to John, and although his response doesn't survive, it's clear that he rebuffed his mother and seems to have not had that money anymore. Okay. Yes. 
So uh, things are going badly. Jeremiah's creditors are threatening to seize their house by this point, and the house is where they run the grocery store from, so that's oh, okay. a big deal. So that's their whole livelihood. That's their whole livelihood. The house had actually come from the Barry family, and Marianne had paid £40 for an interest in it, which gave her the right to occupy it. So technically she doesn't own it. There's a lot of complicated kind of like – Irish inheritance law going on here that we don't need to really get into. But yeah, so she's paid this money for an interest in it, which gives her the right to occupy it. But this had passed into her husband's control when she married him. And now he's going to lose the house. Technically, her brother James had the right to assert legal ownership of the house. And so on the 11th of April, 1804, Marianne wrote to her brother in London asking for help. When no reply had come by June, Marianne and James went to London to find him. We have now reached the point where it's kind of confusing that the protagonist of our story is called James and so is this other guy. I'd just like to flag that of the men in this story so far, we have James, James, Jeremiah, and John. Yes. And I really think we need to diversify. Not to, again, give spoilers, but apart from the main James, all of those men are going to have left pretty soon. Good. So don't worry. Okay, I won't stress. So what we're going to do here for these little bit of time in which we have two James Barrys which actually, now I think about it, is not the last time that we're going to have two James Barrys in this episode, but we'll get to that one in a little while, is we're going to call our James Barry, the main James Barry, James, and we're going to call the older James, James Sr. Okay, cool. I feel like I'm getting more of a mental workout than I bargained for. I'm sorry. (laughs) I didn't name these men. James Barry Sr. was a formerly quite well-respected painter who had somewhat fallen from grace by 1804, not least because of his temperamental and eccentric nature. He had been expelled from the Royal Academy by near-unanimous vote in 1799, (laughs) the only person to be so until 2004, and was now living in a dilapidated and cluttered home. When they reached London, Marianne sent James by himself to visit his uncle. Although James Sr. let him into the home, he was either unable to or unwilling to give Marianne and James charity or any help and they returned to Cork they did lose their house shortly afterwards as well as losing touch with Jeremiah who was soon after that thrown into a debtor's prison Marianne and James returned to London in 1805 again trying to get help from James Senior but he was again unhelpful 19th century was a bad time yeah it was yeah That's all I have to say on that. That's my historical analysis. Yeah. Early in 1806, James Sr. died. So we're significantly (laughs) reduced in our amount of J names. So Jeremiah's gone, James Sr. is gone, and John's basically gone. John's basically gone. Okay, so we're good. We've just got James. We're fine, yep. Okay. Um, James Sr.'s friends secured his possessions. Despite the fact that he'd lived in quite impoverished circumstances, he had had money and effects that were worth a, a pretty decent sum of money. His friends looked for a will, and when they failed to find one, instead looked for his next of kin, and the estate ended up being split between James's two surviving siblings, Redmond and Marianne. As a result, Marianne and James ended up being tolerably well set up for the moment, but they're by no means wealthy and they're still going to have to figure out something for the long term in terms of their finances. James spent the next few years living in London with his mother and looking for work. He was looking mainly for governess and teaching positions as far as we know, but doesn't seem to have been very successful, likely because he was insufficiently educated for that kind of position himself. We know that James had had some sort of education because he was literate by this time, Mm -hmm. but presumably because of his assigned sex and the family's finances, it wouldn't have been a very extensive one. Mm -hmm. And now we're up to where the story starts to get a little bit more interesting and complicated. In 1809, Marianne sailed to Edinburgh in late November to early December. With her was her young nephew, James Barry, who was going to Edinburgh to start medical school. 
For a long time, this is where James's story has started, or at least where it started with any certainty. But we now understand James Barry to be Marianne's younger child, now living under a new name, James Barry, and presenting as a man. Okay. I will be upfront with you. As I said at the top of the podcast, it's our general policy here that we don't use the birth name of people who are transgender or who we can potentially understand to be transgender. And I'm pretty committed to sticking with that for as long as we can, unless like we explicitly know it's okay. Yeah. But it did get a bit confusing here because we are kind of talking about two like different legal identities that we're trying to rectify. I'm still sticking with it. We're still not going to use James's birth name, but it's frankly going to be a little clunky. (laughs) Uh, So I've opted to just kind of say Marianne's younger child. A little bit clunky. I think it's still worth doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's fair enough. Yeah. So the connection between James Barry and Marianne's younger child was noted in 1985 by the art historian William Presley, who noted that Marianne's younger child simply disappears, not only from the historical record, but also in a way that was noted at the time. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then James Barry, Marianne's air quotes, nephew, similarly just appears. Appears, Okay. Well, I mean, that's pretty pretty good evidence. Uh, So we have some more evidence. Yeah. So regarding Marianne's younger child's disappearance, Jeremiah wrote several letters to Marianne's lawyer, Daniel Reardon, who was uh, handling their like finances in London, inquiring after his child who he hadn't heard from for some time and at last asking in distress if James was dead. So really, like, this is just a missing persons case as far as he's concerned. Okay, okay. And actually, James has just taken on a new identity of James, probably. No, like, definitely. Okay. Is, I'll go through some more evidence. Okay, so this is not something that we're like, is this is this what happened? This is just like... Yeah, well, we do have some more evidence. Presley notes that the handwriting from Marianne's child and James Barry are a very close match. Obviously, handwriting analysis is imprecise, but mm. it's still notable. Michael Dupree's also added another piece of evidence in, I believe, a 2008 article he wrote. So Daniel Reardon, the lawyer, was in the habit of writing on the outside of of letters he received, the name of the sender and the date of the letter. And on a letter from James Barry, when he'd recently arrived in Edinburgh, he'd written on the outside, Miss Bulkley. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which is kind of like essentially a smoking gun, really. So just to be like absolutely clear, that seems to me pretty conclusive evidence that while living in London, Marianne and her younger child decided that he would begin to present as a man under the name of James Barry and enroll in medical school in Edinburgh. Okay. And the lawyer knew this was happening based on what he's written on that letter. Yeah. So from marking the letter as Miss Bulkley, it does seem that Daniel Reardon was aware of this situation. Both James and Marianne wrote to Reardon asking him to be discreet in passing on mail from people who'd known them before and seem to have largely cut off contact with their friends and family in order to allow James to more securely keep this secret. Oh, okay. And effectively Reardon is party to that decision. There's no evidence for James having contact with his father and brother ever again after this. Okay, wow. How old is James right now? James would be 20. Okay. So it also seems that there were other people who were aware of the plan. Mm-hmm. So by the time of his death, James Barry Sr. had alienated a lot of his former acquaintances, but he still had a circle of friends, many of whom were influential and well-connected, many of whom were also socially progressive and even radical, including regarding women and their education. A few of them took a special interest in Marianne and James after James Sr.'s death, 
One was a physician and scholar, Dr. Edward Fryer. Another was the Venezuelan revolutionary, General Francisco de Miranda. Miranda was a larger-than-life figure. Dupree's and Dronfield describe him as a scholar, soldier, traveler, diarist, voluptuary, sometime lover of Catherine the Great of Russia, promoter of the rights of women, writer, bibliophile, connoisseur, musician, revolutionary, patriot, diplomat, and twice an escapee from the guillotine. Unfortunately, this episode is not about him. <laughs> Was he queer? Is this like a future possibility uh, or not? Not from like a skim of Wikipedia. Aww. I did check immediately. <laughs> Maybe, but like, yeah, I don't think so. Okay. Which sucks. That does suck. Yeah. Moving on from that immediately. <laughs> so anyway, that's just some guy, just a secondary character. Yeah, I couldn't not tell you that though, right? <laughs> so once he was in Edinburgh, James wrote two letters that sort of wink at the secret of his transition in a way that I frankly found very charming. Okay. The first is that letter to Daniel Reardon in which he says, It was very useful for Mrs. Bulkley, my aunt, to have a gentleman to take care of her on board ship and to have one in a strange country. My aunt is in parentheses. (laughs) As you know, definitely my aunt. The other is to General Miranda. So by this time, James had met a man called David Stuart Erskine, who was the 11th Earl of Buchan, who was another friend of James Barry Sr.'s and who had taken an interest in James and who would kind of look after him a bit while he was in Edinburgh. Oh, yeah. James wrote to General Miranda on the 7th of January, 1810, As Lord B, nor anyone else here, knows anything about Mrs. Bulkley's daughter, I trust, my dear General, that neither you nor the doctor will mention in any of your correspondence anything about my cousin's friendship for me. Which is very interesting. <laughs> Yeah. I like that he just has my cousin's friendship for me. (laughs) Yeah. So we don't really know a lot, as far as I can tell, about the specifics of James's relationship with Miranda or Fryer. As they're aware of the plan, it seems reasonable to assume that they're reasonably close. Yeah. I mean, especially since, like, James's own dad and brother don't know what's happening. Yeah. To be fair, they both suck immensely. Yeah, we haven't seen them in a while. Yes. They've been pretty absent from his life, but you know. Yeah, and like James does have a series of friendships or a series of relationships with kind of like older men who it's, I think, reasonable to assume play some kind of like mentor figure Mm -hmm. to him and given that his dad's not here, like – Yeah. That would be fairly natural, I guess. So it's possible that that's the kind of relationship Miranda and or Fryer have with him. Dupree's and Dronfield suggest that they would have been involved in educating James while he lived in London. But although they had a lot to say on that, from what I could tell, that just seemed fairly conjectural and not something that they have much of a source for. So he's on his way to medical school now in Edinburgh. And before that, we said he probably didn't have that much of an education. So I guess somebody must have educated him in London. I guess, yeah. I think that's kind of the basis of that assumption. I mean, I think really we just kind of don't know, though. Uh Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We do know that when he was living in London, Miranda gave him use of his library. So as mentioned in that long list of Miranda's claims (laughs) to fame, he was a bibliophile. He had uh, quite a famous library of about 6,000 volumes that was worth a lot of money. He owed a lot of money to booksellers. (laughs) Good stuff. So that does seem to imply, like, at the very least, a kind of informal educative atmosphere Mm -hmm. even if they weren't actually giving him like lessons yeah so we therefore know of four people apart from james who knew about his transition his mother marianne the family lawyer daniel reardon dr fryer and general miranda Dupree's and Dronfield therefore posit that james going to medical school as a man was a conspiracy amongst the four of them okay Dupree's and Dronfield then consider who might have proposed this plan 
They conclude that Dr. Fryer and Daniel Reardon were basically just kind of a bit too straight-laced to have come up with it, and Marianne was unlikely to have been the originator due to her anxious temperament. They then turn to General Miranda. Describing him as a born revolutionary, adventurer, and radical thinker, they conclude he would undoubtedly have encouraged, if not originally conceived, the idea. Further to this, the biography posits that the plan was for James to graduate from his degree and then travel with Miranda to assist in bringing revolution to Venezuela, by this time living again as a woman. Is there like evidence for that, or is this just a fun idea they had based on who <laughs> Miranda is as a person? <laughs> as far as I can tell, our evidence for this is a single line from a letter that Lord Buchan wrote to a friend of his mentioning James in October of 1811, Mm -hmm. by which time James is, like, getting towards the end of his degree. Buchan mentioned that he means to go by invitation of General Miranda to the Caracas. Oh, okay. At least that is definite, that that's what he means to do. What exactly he means to do there, I guess Mm. we don't know. So I guess, like, first of all, I would say, to me, that sounds like a pretty wild plan. Yes. Second of all, I want to note how passive James is made in this version Mm. of events. So they kind of say who might have come up with this plan, which of these four people, not which of these five. James is not on that list. And like James as well. Like James is an adult at this time. Yeah. Like it's not like if James was like seven. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And they were like, I think it's time for you to dress as a man or a boy. A boy. (laughs) (laughs) Not seven year old men. (laughs) and go to school it would kind of be like yeah there has to be an adult pushing this but james is an adult he could have just been like no i really want to do this we're gonna make this happen and like happen to have some supportive people on side mm. i mean i think like there are seven-year-olds who are very vocal about how they want to transition oh but, like, yeah 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 like, probably <laughs> at that point an adult would have had to have a hand in it um, yeah yeah like i'm not saying seven-year-olds can't like know they want to transition i'm saying seven-year-olds can't send themselves to medical school <laughs> different situation yeah that's valid yeah a seven-year-old can identify as a boy a seven-year-old cannot identify as a medical student yeah so the decision to do this i think indicates a lot of ambition on james's part and a lot of strength of character regardless of how we understand his gender identity and it seems just very strange especially if you're presenting this in a very narrative format yeah. to not make his motivations and role in the decision the centerpiece of this part of the story. Yeah. Once the decision has been made in the book and they're making preparations, there's parts where they like cut off his long hair and dress him as a boy. And they do write from his perspective in that part, making him look in the mirror and feel very alienated from his appearance and very mm-hmm. strange about it, which is just like complete supposition on their part. Yeah. But for this actual kind of key moment of the decision that would inform the rest of James's life, he his own agency is just completely absent, which is an interesting choice. Lastly, the thing that I most want to know is that through this hypothetical, they've constructed a version of events in which James dressing as a man is only ever meant to be temporary. Because he's meant to then go to Venezuela and present as a woman in Venezuela. Yeah. So I think that the reason why this story was necessary to come up with why this is what they've concluded is because Dupree's and Dronford can conceive of James, who again, they understand as a woman deciding to live as a man for a set period of time to achieve a short-term goal. Mm-hmm. They struggle to believe that he would make this decision knowing that it was long-term or permanent. Yeah. And I just think it's worth noting that, you know, this is the most well-researched biography of James's life by far. It's, the most well-known, you know, it's, it's the main biography and it cannot reconcile the central choice of his life and its understanding of him as a woman without having to undermine that choice with a wild and unproven hypothetical situation. Yeah. And it can't actually engage with 
him making that choice in a meaningful way. It's just kind of written him out of that decision. Yeah. Because it doesn't know how to write him into that decision without being like, wait a second. Yeah. So we'll come yeah. back to James's post-medical school plans when we get up to that point. Yeah. But I just kind of wanted to note the elements of this story at this point. Fair enough. Yeah. But for now, James has gone to medical school. <laughs> Good for James. He began his studies at Edinburgh in December of 1809, and he quickly proved himself to be a diligent student. Writing to Red and he said, I have my hands full of delightful business and work from seven o'clock in the morning till two the next. Good for you, James. I'm glad you're having fun. Yep. <laughs> I don't want that. I'd rather die personally, but you enjoy that. <laughs> there were some compulsory subjects for medical students, but there wasn't a set course of study and James's studies exceeded that of most other students. He took the compulsory courses of anatomy and surgery, chemistry, botany, materia medica and pharmacology, medical theory and practice, as well as clinical lectures in the Royal Infirmary. He also added midwifery, private anatomy and surgery classes, military surgery, medical jurisprudence, Greek natural philosophy, which is a kind of precursor to physics, mm-hmm. and moral philosophy, which is essentially like an ethics class. So were they just like, hey, James, here's the handbook. You can choose your subjects. And he was like, yes, I have chosen all of them. Yes. The anatomy lectures included practical demonstrations. However, these were very crowded and poorly taught. And so in order to get a proper grasp of anatomy, one had to enroll in a private class. James took three courses in dissection in 1810, 1811, and 1812 with a man called Mr. Fife. So at this stage, these classes are unregulated, and therefore we don't actually know a lot about them. You're making a very alarmed face. Mr. Fife's just like, hey, here's a dead body. Do you want to have a look, James? And James is like, yeah, sounds amazing. Like, can't help but notice that he's not called Dr. Fife. <laughs> he's just a guy. Yeah, so uh, Mr. Fife had no medical qualifications. <laughs> this man is not a doctor. <laughs> But he had begun as an assistant to Edinburgh's previous anatomy professor, and he was genuinely a skilled anatomist. You could just okay. do that in an amateur fashion at this time. Okay, okay. So he wasn't just like some guy off the street who was just like, hey, kids. <laughs> like he was, but he had the skills to back it up. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Then. Yeah. So yeah, we don't know a lot about these classes in detail because they are unregulated and run by some random man. <laughs> But they obviously would have involved practical dissections. The only bodies that could legally be dissected at this time were those of executed murderers. But the demand from medical students far outstripped the supply, and therefore many of these bodies were likely supplied by grave robbers. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to go too much more into that. This part of the book might be difficult for some people to read if they're squeamish about this type of thing, but I thought was particularly interesting, a particularly valuable part of the book, because a lot of it's informed by Dupree's own experience as a doctor. So he notes that some of the details that they include James noticing about the process of dissecting human body came from his own observations when he had dissected human bodies in medical school, Mm -hmm. uh, which is just like a pretty visceral amount of detail. And like, I can't provide anywhere near the medical knowledge that is in that book. So it it generally is really, really good from that perspective. I know trans things though, so (laughs) that's why we're here. So yeah, if, if that part of it interests you, I would recommend checking out the book. There are a lot of like very interesting footnotes on that topic. So we don't know an awful lot about James's personal life from his student days. A lot of what we do know comes from a letter that Janet Carfin of Edinburgh wrote to the medical journal The Lancet in 1895. Janet had heard about James from her late friend, Dr. Jobson, who had studied with him. So 
In the letter, she says, although Barry kept the other students at a distance, he soon became friendly with Dr. Jobson and invited him to his lodgings where he introduced him to his mother with whom he lived. I thought that was interesting because if it's correct that Dr. Jobson told Janet that he'd been introduced to Mrs. Bulkley as James's mother, either Jobson made a mistake when he told Janet or James himself had inadvertently or on purpose revealed part of the story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because you think if James was like, no, like, I've taken on this new identity as mm. my mother's nephew, he would be more careful about that, about, like, introducing her as his aunt. Mm. I mean, I guess, but, you know, like, people slip up. People do slip up. Um, but also if somebody's like, hey, like, come back to my house, I live with an old woman who I'm related to, like, somebody might just be like, oh, yeah, that's your mom. Yeah. It's not a outlandish coincidence, but it is an interesting coincidence if he just messed it up and happened to, like – inadvertently remember the truth instead of the lie he had been told. (laughs) That's true, yeah. Um, It doesn't particularly change anything about James's story overall. I just thought it was an interesting detail. Mm -hmm. We also learn that James was made fun of because of his unfashionable coat. Oh, uh, James. This, <laughs> this might have been a difference between London and Edinburgh's fashion trends. Oh, yeah. Jobson also tried to teach James to box, but he could never really get him to be very good at it. Janet's letter says he never would strike out, but kept his arms over his chest to protect it from blows. <laughs> just makes me think of when people try to learn to play ball sports who are just, like, very frightened of the ball. That's mm. how I picture him. Yes. I can't imagine that experience. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> James began the process for graduation in May of 1812. So only about 20% of medical students at Edinburgh actually graduated. I don't know what it is now. I assume it's more than that. So in order to begin the process, James would have had to inform the dean of his intention to be examined and then pay a fee. However, due to his appearance, rumors had begun to grow about James's age. And because of his apparent extreme youth, the university declined to let him sit his examinations. Oh, okay. It seems that Lord Buchan also believed him to be very young, writing to a friend. He's much younger than is usual to take his degrees in medicine and surgery, yet from what I have observed is likely to entitle himself to them by his attainments. So Lord Buchan appears to think he's got like a wonderkind here. Wait, was Lord Buchan one of the guys that was, like, in on this plan when he came from London? Oh, wait, that was a different... Yeah, so uh, Lord Buchan is another friend of the older James Barry who lived in Edinburgh, Mm -hmm. uh, and James meets him after he comes there. He doesn't appear to know anything about James's past. There is speculation in the biographies. I think there's not really anything to base it on, Mm, so who knows. Okay, cool. Despite the fact that he believed James was like 12 or whatever. Well, I mean, if he entered medical school at seven. (laughs) Well, true, yes. Nevertheless, Lord Buchan intervened for the university and pointed out that there wasn't actually any official rule that required a student to be of a particular age. Oh, okay. So they were just kind of like, nah, James, you just look really young. And people were like, that's not a thing. Yeah. And it's also the fact that Lord Buchan is a lord. And so he had some sway. I think it would have been different if James had been like, show me where it says I have to be whatever age. Yeah. So, and James is allowed to sit his exams. Cool. There was first an oral exam held in private to determine whether the candidate should be able to proceed. And then there was one held in the university library. They then sat a written exam, which was partly on like medical case studies and then also on aphorisms of Hippocrates. Okay. That's important. Yep. And then lastly, they had to write a thesis and defend it publicly. All of this was done in Latin. 
Oh, okay. Mm. I guess I did kind of like intellectually know that they used to study at uni in Latin, but I never really thought about it much. Yes. I uh, see. Regarding his education, we do know that he learned Latin or at least had to vastly improve his Latin after he got to university. Lord Buchan, writing to that friend of his, is like, can you kind of help him out with his thesis Latin? Because it's not oh, very yeah. good. <laughs> So he had to improve that, had to kind of master that Latin in order to be able to have a, a conversation about medical matters in it. I'm glad that we didn't have to do our degrees in Latin. I mean, we, we did. We kind of did by choice. <laughs> James's thesis was on femoral hernia, which was a fairly topical subject at the time, uh, but not particularly well understood. Femoral hernia is a type of hernia. and that's... That affects the femur? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Uh, I do know it mostly affects women. This oh, is yeah. something that was made a lot out of because, as you see, James is a woman, therefore he's secretly studying women things. Is that also why he studied midwifery? Even though he studied every single subject available to him? <laughs> like, a couple of biographies I read did kind of imply, like, oh, one can see why James, with his secret, would have had an interest in midwifery, <laughs> in vagina things, basically. But it is also said by Debris and Dronfield that that was something that you needed to have in order to go into their army because... If you were in the army, you were also responsible for soldiers' wives. Oh, yeah. Who would, on occasion, give birth. And we know that he did, like, military – what was it called? Like, military doctoring as a subject. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, maybe not everything is about James's genitals. <laughs> maybe not. Crazy. But, yeah, so he does this thesis on femoral hernia, which is pretty topical but not – particularly well understood at the time compared to our knowledge now, as you might expect. His thesis was a reasonable summation of the contemporary understanding of it and was particularly strong in the understanding of anatomy that it evidenced. So all of that dodgy cutting up of bodies in Mr. Fife's basement paid off. Thanks, Mr. Fife. In a cheeky reference to his youthful appearance, James quoted Menanda on the title page of his thesis, saying, Do not regard these as the words of a youth, but consider whether I revealed the wisdom of a mature individual. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. James did well at his exams, and in July of 1812, he was awarded his degree. Good for you, James. Yes. Dr. Barry. Dr. Barry. After this, James and Marianne moved back to London. On the 17th of October, 1812, James signed on as a pupil at the United Hospitals of Guy's and St. Thomas's. He would spend six months there as a pupil to the St. Thomas Apothecary, gaining practical experience in going on the morning and night rounds of the wards. Hmm. He also attended surgeries and yet more lectures on anatomy, surgery, midwifery, medicine, and chemistry. I know this is just like what becoming a doctor is like, but you know, it's a lot. But yeah, we haven't done that for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> James's time at the United Hospitals ended in April of 1813, and in June he applied to join the army. So obviously he no longer plans to join General Miranda in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. Even if he had wanted to do this, it was no longer possible. In 1810, a coup had taken place in Venezuela and Miranda had returned there. The situation had rapidly deteriorated into war, and Miranda was betrayed to the Spanish and imprisoned in July of 1812, when James would have been sitting his exams. Oh, okay, so there was never an opportunity to actually carry through this Miranda plan, if that indeed was the plan. Indeed. There is some evidence that James had intended to go into the army before this anyway. 
His studies had been somewhat geared towards it, as we've already noticed, with him taking military surgery and midwifery, although this would have presumably been just as suited to a career in revolutionary Venezuela. I yeah, suppose. yeah. Janet Carfin recalled that both Dr. Jobson and Dr. Barry resolved to go into the army and says that they had visited a depot together. There's also a much-quoted line from a letter James wrote to his brother John. In late 1808, so before James went away to medical school, mm-hmm. we're jumping back in time now. I was just being like, wait a second, John's back? What? No, what? John is not back. Okay. Will um, we ever see John again? No. Okay, fine. <laughs> Bye. So in late 1808, before James went away to medical school, John wrote to him and Marianne asking for help. He was at that time in a penal regiment of the army and about to be shipped off to war. James wrote him a sarcastically cheerful letter, reminding him that it was an honor to die for his country and saying, was I not a girl, I would be a soldier. It's uncertain to me how genuine a sentiment this can be read as in that context, Mm. given the situation in which it was written. But it has been taken by some as early evidence of James's interest in the army. And given that he does then go into the army, that is a pretty obvious connection to make. Yeah. The reason that when James decided to go into the army is significant is that it potentially indicates that he was not planning to go to Venezuela or that this plan was not his only aspiration, that all of his eggs were not in that basket. Oh, yeah. It wasn't like I am going to medical school dressed as a man in order to go to Venezuela, Mm. which is kind of how that was presented to us by Dupree's and Drumfield. Yeah. So if that's the case, that kind of gets rid of James's hypothetical plan to resume living as a woman. Mm -hmm. I'll return to that piece of evidence for James wanting to go to Venezuela, which is the line from Lord Buchan's letter where he says that he plans to go by General Miranda's invitation to the Caracas or whatever it was. I'm not going to pretend that was verbatim. But I do think that that, if you just think about those words, is hardly evidence of everything that Dupree's and Dronford claim it is. Yeah. And it could just be that, like, at that summer he was talking about that because he was interested in it. It doesn't mean that that was, like, the entire reason for his entire life up to this point. Yeah. I mean, you could just as easily, like, knowing that he does join the army, you could just as easily be like, yep, that was the long-term plan Mm. to become a doctor and join the army. Yeah. I also want to note, now that he is definitely trying to join the army, that it is quite difficult to leave the army once you're enrolled in it. Okay. And James's decision to apply further indicates that he intended to live as a man permanently. Yeah. It should also be noted, I think, that the army didn't really pay all that well, certainly not as much as private practice, and that he would be facing some very harsh living conditions by joining the army. This, to me, further undermines the understanding that some have that his living as a man, joining the army, etc., is merely a matter of financial stability and increased economic opportunity. Mm-hmm. Army life would provide other things, though, such as the opportunity for adventure and travel, so I'll acknowledge that. On the 2nd of July, 1813, he passed the examination of the Court of Examiners of the Royal College of Surgeons of England and qualified as a regimental assistant. Some biographers have struggled to figure out how he got through the army physical exam. Dupree's and Dronfield solved this by looking at the historical records and figuring out that there just wasn't one at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that answers that. I was thinking when you were talking about like how the army wouldn't provide financial stability and would be quite a hard life. I was thinking it's also going to be one of the hardest places Mm. for him to like hide the fact that he's transitioned. Yeah. So there is, I believe, like a physical exam for sort of the like – you know, lower ranks of just like common soldiers. Oh, yeah. But what he's applying to as a surgeon is the officer's class. And at this point it's considered, well, you're a gentleman, your word for your physical fitness is good enough. We're not going to make you strip off naked in a room. Yeah, so yeah. that's just not an issue. Mm-hmm. So that solves that. 
Well, good for James in this moment. Yep. On the 5th of July, 1813, three days after his examination, he was recruited as a hospital assistant and posted to the military hospital in Chelsea. After this point, there's no evidence for corresponding or any contact between James and the people we've met thus far who have been important to his life, including Daniel Reardon, Dr. Fryer, and even his mum. Oh, okay. It's possible that he wrote a few letters and they simply don't survive, Mm -hmm. but the complete lack of evidence makes Dupree's and Dronfield think that there was a falling out between James and his mother. We've seen James do something like this before when he went to Edinburgh and cut off contact with everyone that he'd known back in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And it doesn't seem unlikely to me that this is the result of a desire for a clean break with anyone who knew him as a woman. Mm Mm-hmm. Especially given that it's not just Marianne he cuts off, it's like everyone he knows in his close to. I kind of struggle to see what like falling out that would be. Yeah. It was so total. So the hospital that he was assigned to treated men who'd been injured fighting in the army. They would either be made well and returned to service or declared unfit for service and granted a pension. The hospital saw a huge influx of wounded men, and the time that young surgeons spent there was effectively a way to quickly toughen them up before sending them overseas. Okay, is there like a specific major war going on at the moment, or is this just like the general wars of the British Empire? Just take it as that. There are going to be a lot of wars that are in and of themselves, you know, very big political situations throughout James's life. I don't think it really behooves us to get into the political situation of any one of them. We're in the British Empire. Empire and they're doing war. Okay. I think he's kind of good enough for our Okay, yeah, that's fair enough. After three months, James was appointed acting assistant surgeon in recognition of the quality of his work. Despite this, he wasn't given an overseas posting due to his age again being under suspicion. (laughs) Uh, He just needs to go and just spend a summer just like staring directly into the sun or something. tanning wildly. (laughs) Yeah. Lord Buchan again intervened and a posting was found for James at the Military General Hospital at Stoke, Damerol and Plymouth. So he's still in touch with Lord Buchan at this stage. Has he not made this break Uh, with his... So I say Lord Buchan. uh, To be honest, we don't know that that's the truth. So, like complaints are made about his age because it seems like he's again like 12 and some like higher authority intervenes to say like don't question this it's fine and Mm -hmm. Dupreece and Dronfeld have just kind of concluded that that's probably Lord Buchan given that he's done this before and that like we don't know of anyone else who's going to be that bothered with stepping in for this random assistant surgeon yeah and I thought that was fair enough and so I just told you that but yeah that is actually interesting I hadn't thought about it I guess so yeah I mean, I guess if you were talking about him making, like, a clean break with anyone who had known him as a woman, like, we established that we don't have evidence that Lord Buchan did know about his past, so yeah. maybe he didn't break with Lord Buchan. I'm just speculating, though. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> just wild conjecture. Yeah. And, like, I, I do think, like, we should know, because of the gaps in James's story, you do kind of have to conjecture and mm. just be, like, upfront that that's what you're doing yeah. with this story. And so, like, fair enough to Debris and Dronfield. The conjecturing, I feel like they could have been more upfront about it here and there, but you know. Yeah. So... James is posted to the Military General Hospital in Plymouth. The principal medical officer was Dr. Joseph Skye. It's spelled S-K-E-Y. S-K-E-Y. Yeah. Dr. Skye? I don't know. I'm just going to say Skye. He was deeply shocked by James's appearance because, again, he looks like 12, (laughs) uh, but was quickly pleased with his work. Nevertheless, due to his apparent age of being like 12. Do we have pictures of James at this time? No. Oh, okay. Because I know no. I've seen pictures of James. I couldn't remember, like, when in his life they were. No, only when he's, like, quite old. Oh, okay. uh, we do have a little painting of him at this time. It's that one of him in his red jacket. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I know the one, yeah. Yeah. Nevertheless, due to his apparent age, he was denied the possibility of being posted overseas for another three years. <laughs> this was much, much longer than other men of considerable position and experience would stay in this kind of position for. But finally, on the 7th of December, 1815, James was appointed assistant surgeon to the forces and in August of 1816 was posted to Cape Town in South Africa. So we've been really building up to like James going overseas and like how long he's had to wait to go overseas. Is that like obviously the goal? Like, does he want to go overseas? Is that what all the people in these kind of positions are working towards? Is it like a promotion? I guess is what I'm asking. I mean, he does receive a promotion, but also, yeah, like that is, I believe, the normative thing that would occur. Oh, okay. So, like, it's reasonable to assume that if he got into the army as a doctor, he would be wanting to do that. Okay, yeah. That's uh, the normal path that you would yeah, go on. You'll be sent off to some British colony to do British colonial things. Okay. James arrived in South Africa in late October. He reported to the principal medical officer, found accommodation for himself, and then went to deliver a letter of introduction to Lieutenant General Lord Charles Somerset, the governor of the Cape. Lieutenant Um, General Lord? Okay, Charlie, calm down. Yeah, we are going to be calling him Charles, (laughs) because we're Australian. What are you meant to call him? Like, Lieutenant Somerset? Lieutenant General Lord? Like, you meant to say the whole thing, like they do in Germany? I'm sure that there are intense etiquette things around this, and we're going to call him Charles. Okay. (laughs) Chuck. So, Chucky. (laughs) Isn't that the, like, evil little doll? Yeah. 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 A different person. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. So, Charlie. Charles. Charles had been distrustful of doctors since the death of his wife a year earlier. Right up until her death, her doctors had been assuring Charles that there was no need for concern, that she was surely going to get better. And they were wrong. Mm -hmm. He and his wife had married for love and married despite familial disapproval. So... That's a big deal. And Charles mourned her very, very deeply after her death. Charles's daughter, Georgiana, was now ill when James arrived at the colony, and James threw himself into Georgiana's care, and she recovered, which is good. And because of this, James became close to the entire Somerset family, including Charles. In September of 1818, Charles himself fell ill. It was serious enough that a ship was readied to take the news back to England just in case he died. That's not what you want to, like, see out your window if you're lying in your sick bed. Yeah. Like, I- there's some guy standing with the letter that says Charles is dead just waiting to set sail. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the 19th century. Yeah. Stuff's rough. However, although he was ill for two weeks, under James's care, Charles recovered as well. Nice. Charles's faith in James, as you might expect by this point, was huge. Charles wrote to the governor of St. Helena, whose wife was unwell, saying, I have, however, beside here quite a prodigy and a physician in Dr. Barry, whose skill has affected wonders since he has been here. Indeed, it would be worthwhile for an invalid to come here solely for the purpose of obtaining his advice. Nice. Yeah. So the governor of the colony is obviously quite a powerful patron. Mm-hmm. And quite highly beneficial to James. In December of 1817, so before Charles was even ill, James had been made the official physician to the Somerset household and given accommodation at Government House. He was also made the vaccinating physician to the Vaccine Institute, which handled smallpox inoculation in the colony, which is a good thing. Like, if I was in a smallpox outbreak, I would want to get vaccinated. <laughs> Don't you agree, Alice? Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, that's a good thing we're not in a smallpox outbreak. Due to Charles's approval, James was viewed basically as like a medical prodigy in the colony and was sought after by many wealthy high society patients. 
One chronicler observed of James in Cape Town, he had the eye of a hawk from which no detail escaped, summing up a situation at a glance. And following this assessment, the patient and his relatives were able to witness how the sickness would resolve. His practice was extraordinarily successful, and he combined his clarity of vision with firmness of hand and strength of will. They really make him sound quite, like, magical. Mm, yeah. I guess medicine does kind of seem like magic at this point. I mean, does it not kind of seem magical now? Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I think particularly because, like, there's a lot of things that we understand that they don't understand. Mm. So, like, there are times where a cure works, but they don't really know why. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or, like, doctors will have a theory about why that we now know is wrong, but, like, the common person wouldn't really know. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, this is the age of prescriptions being written in Latin, so the patient can't read it and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. So, I guess you'd have no idea what yeah. you were being given. They were just like, take this potion and you'll get better. Yeah. And you'd be like, hey, I did. Yeah. Whereas yeah. now, if a doctor's like, take this, I'll be like, what's it going to do? And obviously, I still don't understand it nearly as much as a doctor, but, like, I expect to know why I'm taking a pill. And you can, like, Google it and be like, well, what's the experience people have? Tell me, WebMD. Do you think WebMD is on average better or worse than a 19th century doctor? (laughs) Anyway, probably the most famous case that James dealt with was that of Wilhelmina Munich. He was caught to her bedside on the night of the 25th of July, 1826. At that time, she was in the midst of a very difficult labor, and it seemed that both she and the baby were going to die. James examined her and determined that the only option was cesarean. So the patient was awake and without pain relief for the experience. I'm sorry, Wilhelmina. Anesthetic was not quite a thing yet. James actually would use anesthetic in his career, but like a couple decades later, I believe. So Wilhelmina would have been held down for the experience by the midwife or by household servants and probably given a bit of leather or something to bite. James performed the operation and delivered the child and then stayed with Wilhelmina throughout the night and visited her regularly on the following days. And surprisingly, she too survived. This was rare for caesareans at the time. So in 1879, the British medical student Robert Falcon traveled to Uganda and witnessed a caesarean section where both mother and child survived. And he noted that this was apparently not uncommon in that community, Mm -hmm. uh, which is pretty cool. Yeah. But in a European context, at least, there are isolated reports throughout the centuries of both mother and baby surviving a cesarean section. Some of these are better documented than others, Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, but it certainly wasn't yet standard at this point in history for the mother to survive this operation. Okay. It was was kind of something you did where you got to the point where mother and baby are both going to die, so let's save the baby. Uh-huh. So I've heard people say that, like, James Barry performed the first successful cesarean. Oh, that's just... And that's just yeah hyperbole. Yeah, it is hyperbole. Yeah. Like, I think the way this is phrased at the start of his Wikipedia entry is, like, he performed the first cesarean where a mother and baby survived, like, that was performed by a British... <laughs> military officer in Africa or something like that and like that's probably true but, but at that point you're getting into specifics and like yeah. if some other people in Africa was performing successful cesareans and some other British people performing cesareans like he hasn't really got much claim to fame yeah I think that that makes it actually seem less impressive yeah. it's still, it, it is genuinely very impressive yeah. Yeah. this is as I've said not the expected outcome at the time and like he deserves credit for that but yeah like it, it's not the first one ever i think if you kind of think about that like obviously that's not going to be the case right yeah like, yeah sometimes we just do a medical miracle <laughs> and yeah like i particularly didn't want us to ignore testimony about 
things like that community in Uganda apparently just figured this out. <laughs> Good for them. Yeah. We're not really sure what distinguishes James's operation on Wilhelmina from the many others that ended more poorly with the death of the mother. The cause of death in these cases is generally thought to be bacterial infection. Mm-hmm. No one knew about bacteria at the time and so couldn't really guard against it, but James was generally noted for being more inclined towards cleanliness than most doctors, so that probably played a part. Oh, yeah. Uh, and also just his general skill as a doctor, his knowledge of anatomy and so forth must have also played their part. Thomas and oh Thomas is the husband. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was like, I'm no Thomas. Oh, no. No. Oh, no. Who's Thomas? <laughs> He's been irrelevant in proceedings until now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Hi Tom. Wilhelmina and her husband Thomas were obviously overjoyed and grateful, and on the twentieth of August their son was christened as James Barry Munich, with James named as his godfather. Oh. James gifted the family with that little portrait he'd had done of himself when he was nearly commissioned in his little red jacket. Oh yeah, very yeah. good. And it remained a treasured heirloom of the family. And when James Barry Munich grew up and had a son, he too was named James Barry Munich and the name stayed in the family. In 1836, James briefly returned to Cape Town and met the now 10-year-old James Barry Munich. After he left, he actually corresponded with the younger James Barry for some years. So I told you there'd be two James Barrys again. (laughs) And one of their letters that Dupreeze and Dronfield quote starts with, my dear James Barry, and is signed yours affectionately, James Barry. <laughs> Which I just thought was great. They're in like a two-person club. That's very cute. There was another side to James's temperament. The same chronicler who I quoted singing his praises earlier, having the eye of a hawk, etc. Oh, yeah. Also said he could be as angry and reckless as a ruffian. And there are various stories about how he would burst into rages at patients and their families who didn't follow his instructions. Uh-uh. Uh, he seemed to be very, very proud. So once a clergyman asked if he would come and remove one of his teeth and Dr. Barry was offended, thinking this sort of work was beneath him and instead sent the local farrier to the clergyman's <gasps> house, telling him that there was a donkey there who required a tooth pulling. Oh, wow. That's so rude. It's so rude. Wow. It's kind of funny, though. <laughs> like, can you just imagine the awkward, awkward conversation those two men had? Yes, like, hello, I'm here to pull a tooth from a donkey. No, that is me. So. <laughs> Do you think you did it? Turns out much the tooth hurts, I guess. Yeah. This brings us to another famous story about James. In 1819, James was in Government House chatting to Josiah Cluter, who was one of Somerset's aides. A woman came to meet with Somerset and went into his office, and James made a suggestive remark about this to Josiah. It's not appropriate, James. No, yeah. I mean, it was a huge social faux pas at the time, and Josiah told him to retract his statement. James refused, and Josiah pulled his nose, which (laughs) Prince and Ronfield described as the conventional alternative to a blow. Oh, okay. So So it's like, like, I would hit you, but I'm too good for that. Yes, I'm just going to yank your schnoz. (laughs) Got your nose. Got your nose, you cad. (laughs) On a demand that James respond to this by challenging Josiah's nose to a duel. (laughs) So the two men met at dawn, as is customary, and they duel. James's aim was better, and he struck Josiah in the forehead, although he's fine because he's wearing a really ornate fancy military cap, so they've both shown up in their, like, best outfits, and the, like, metal on it just deflects the bullet. Okay, well, I'm glad that James didn't just kill a man. Yeah. So he's not seriously wounded. He's okay. And then James gets shot in the thigh. The surgeon who was present hurried over to assist, but James bound the wound himself shook hands with Josiah and got into his carriage and then presumably in privacy dressed the wound himself, which is pretty baller. (laughs) 
Yeah. It must have been, I suppose, a very shallow wound, so that was lucky. But it's a pretty bold thing for a man in his position to be dueling someone in the first place, I would say. Actually, Josiah and James become quite good friends after this, which is apparently not (laughs) common when men fight a duel. They, I guess, respect each other. And Josiah is actually one of James's oldest friends. He he visits him when he's on his, like, little retirement tour uh, when he's an old man. So that's nice. That's nice. Well, that was the, probably the best outcome we could have had from that. Actually, when he goes back to, I don't remember where Josiah's actually stationed at this point, but somewhere in like the Caribbean, when James is an old man, he gets into some kind of disagreement with another guy and is going to challenge him to a duel. And Josiah comes in and is like, no, you two shake hands and stop this nonsense. <laughs> I don't want you getting nice. a new best friend, James. Yes, it's me. You're my best friend. <laughs> So we've talked a lot about James's relationships with the kind of upper crust of Mm. Cape Town society, but he didn't only treat the wealthy. He also took a very marked interest in more disenfranchised communities, in particular the poor and black communities of Cape Town. For much of 1820 to 1821, Charles was away from the colony in England on leave. So going places took so long in these days that you just went on two years leave from your job. (laughs) When will I go on two years leave from my job? I would love to go on two years leave from my job. I'll sail to the other side of the world if I can be on two years leave. Sure, I'll do it. Yeah. During Charles's absence, the acting governor general had reorganized the medical administration of the colony and created the office of colonial medical inspector, which effectively held authority over just like all public health and medical decisions. Okay. Yeah. This position was given to Dr. John Robb, who was an experienced army surgeon, but he resigned from the position in early 1822. By this point, Charles had returned and he gave the position to James. Nice. So James is doing pretty good. James is doing very well from this. very successful. Yeah. Do they still think he's like 12? <laughs> Probably not 12, but maybe like 18 or something, to be honest. I mean, I guess he's been in Cape Town for a while. So yeah. like, they at least know that he wasn't adult when he arrived and has aged however many years he's yes. been there now. James threw himself into his work undertaking an assessment of the medical conditions of the colony aimed at documenting and addressing poor conditions and practices that were in place. Nothing of this sort or scale had been attempted before, just wasn't something that his predecessors had done. And so he didn't have any records or precedents to fall back on. He was effectively trying to create a public health policy from scratch. This included inspections of the public health institutions of the colony. Charles had authorized the creation of the leper institution, a leper colony called I can only assume, ironically, heaven and earth, in 1817. And James had asked that inspection of it be added to his duties as colonial medical inspector. He travelled there in 1822 and found the conditions appalling. The patients who were either largely or entirely African, I couldn't quite Mm -hmm. tell, having insufficient food, clothing and shelter, being forced to labour and generally being quite neglected. Oh, okay. The men in charge of the colony were dismissed, and James put in place various measures to increase the comfort of the patients, including increasing their rations. And not making them work? Yeah, I assume so. I hope so. Yeah. He made the 150-mile round trip several times to ensure the progress of the colony. He also made other similar reforms, inspecting, for example, the Somerset Hospital in March of 1824, and similarly, finding the mental patients housed in appalling circumstances. He wrote a 50-page report on these conditions and suggested comprehensive reforms resulting in improved conditions. Good on it. Similarly, again, he inspected Cape Town's prison in 1825, found the conditions terrible, and tried to improve the healthcare and living conditions of the prisoners. 
In this instance, he was less successful in his reforms because of resistance from the fiscal, a man named Daniel Dennison, who was ultimately responsible for law enforcement and judicial processes in the colony. James's reports on this matter became increasingly unprofessional and personal. Uh, although he was pointing to genuine abuses and mistreatment by these systems. Yeah. James was summoned before the Court of Justice to be questioned about his reports and refused to go, arguing that it set a dangerous precedent for the courts to effectively veto government reports that it didn't like. It's a fair point. Nevertheless, this was a legal summons, and James was charged with contempt of court and sentenced to imprisonment. Oh. The imprisonment ended up being waylaid, but the result of the situation was nevertheless that the role of colonial medical inspector was replaced with a committee, and James effectively lost the job. So James was too powerful and caused too many problems, and they were like, we can't have someone have that job anymore. I think that the sort of argument was that it was too much for one person in terms of responsibilities, which is true. Yeah, I mean, that is a fair argument, Mm. but also Um, a convenient way to be like, we need to get rid of James right now. Yeah. James was actually offered a place on the committee, but not the presidency, as he had assumed he would be offered. And he turned it down, I think, just out of offense. I mean, we already knew that he was very proud, so Yeah. Yeah. He resigned all civil roles and returned to merely like sticking to his role as an army doctor, seeing to the various soldiers and their families posted in Cape Town. The committee that replaced him consisted of five men, several of whom were James's friends and who we can therefore assume were like, you know, decent mm-hmm. men, but they weren't his equal in skill, knowledge of the colony or zeal, and they struggled to keep up with the workload that he had managed alone. <laughs> Okay. To finish our discussion of James's time in Cape Town, I wanted to return to his relationship with Charles Somerset. I'm saying that in the gay tone. Can you tell? <laughs> this has been a not at all gay episode, so uh, now is the time. Yeah. So Dupree's and Dronfield, and also another biography I read by Rachel Holmes, which I'll discuss more in this second episode, both speculated that James and Charles might have had a romantic relationship. We've already seen some of the evidence that's put forward for this. Charles repeatedly gave James posts and political powers that were remarkable for his age and military rank and obviously very highly esteemed him. But to be fair, James did save the life of him and his daughter. Yes, that is true. (laughs) So, you know. Yes. Early in James's time in Cape Town, he accompanied Charles on a three-month-long tour of the colony, during which they travelled long distances over difficult terrain and camped at night. The following year, when Charles was ill, James had cared for him. So these are two instances fairly early in their relationship where they're thrown into this very close and intimate situation, Mm -hmm. which likely deepened their bond. I feel like you can kind of take that either way as either like evidence that maybe they had a romantic relationship, but also as like reasons why they would have had a really close bond yeah. that was not a romantic explanation. But this is this is the kind of evidence that gets used in the biographies. So yeah. yeah. Thought I would tell you about it. James quickly became included in the Somerset household. He was one of those in the small group of close friends and family that said goodbye to Charles when he boarded the boat back to England when he went on his last two year leave period that we envy. When a committee replaced the office of Colonial Medical Inspector, Charles wrote to James that the only obstacle to its creation was, quote, my apprehensions that it might hurt your feelings, which is very sweet. That's very sweet. Regardless of if it's in a gay way. (laughs) A local satire of their relationship depicted James coming to church and leaving when he saw that Charles wasn't there. (laughs) 
Is that sad hiring how close they are? Or is that some comment about James's like piety or lack thereof? I'll read it to you <laughs> and you can decide. So it okay. reads, with courteous devotion inspired, Barry came to the temple of prayer, but quickly turned around and retired when he found that his Lord was not there. <laughs> That's pretty gay. That's pretty like, gay. As you've been saying these things, I've kind of been wondering, would these biographers be saying this if they didn't conceptualize James as a woman? Yeah, a very pertinent question. <laughs> and we will return to it, but I'll first give you the most interesting sort of information about this, which is that they were the subject of a scandal in June of 1824 when placards were posted in Cape Town that read, a person makes it known or takes this method of making it known to the public authorities of this colony that on the 5th of May, he detected Lord Charles buggering Dr. Barry. Oh, well, there you have it. (laughs) So I guess the answer to my question is yes. Even if they didn't conceptualize James as a woman, there's still something that biographers would be talking about here. Yeah. And so like, to be clear, you know, like, Charles is the governor of a colony, so it's easy to imagine, like, even though we haven't really talked much about his politics, that of course he has political rivals and people who don't like him. And we've talked about how James is kind of a jerk and also definitely has people who don't like him. So, like, we shouldn't take these anonymous posters being like, these two totally had sex as a fact. Like, absolutely not. Yeah. But, you know, it was an accusation that was made and that someone thought was, I guess, believable enough that they could make that accusation. The accusation spread through the colony like wildfire because this is a crazy thing to have happened. And James heard of it while he was walking through the town that morning. He went into a shop, told the shopkeeper's wife, who he was familiar with or like a friend of or something like that, what had happened and then cried as she tried to comfort him. Aww. Rewards for the apprehension of the culprit were posted by both James and Charles. The day after the scandal broke, Charles and his second wife, so by then he had remarried, went with James to the theatre as a kind of public show of solidarity. Oh, that's nice. And when they appeared in their box, the audience applauded. Okay, that's good. Also as a sign of solidarity. So it's clearly not like generally believed that this is true. There was an inquiry held and various suspects were discussed, but no one was ever proven to have done it. And ultimately who posted the placards remains unsolved. (laughs) And so does the exact nature of Charles's and James's relationship, really. So we've certainly been willing to speculate on the basis of like this amount of evidence in other episodes that oh, yeah. people were gay. So yeah. there is like something there. Yeah, and I think we've definitely kind of used the line before that like if somebody's accusing someone and putting up these placards of, you know, Charles buggered James or whichever way around that was meant to be. Yes, correct. Then like There's no smoke without fire, I think, is essentially what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. At least they were close enough that that seemed like a plausible accusation you could make, Mm. whether or not they were actually having sex, which we can't know. But, like, nothing really comes of this. Their reputation in Cape Town society isn't really damaged by it, so I guess that kind of indicates that, like, it's not that plausible. Yeah, yeah. It can be kind of written off as that's just one, you know. Mm. Are there any other examples we have, and I assume we'll get to if there are, but just, you know, briefly, of James, like, having potential romantic or sexual relationships with men during his life? No. Okay. There's not really a lot of evidence of James having relationships with anyone throughout his life. We can speculate about why that is. It could have been something that he wasn't that interested in. It could have been something that he didn't really feel he had the time for because of his career. Like, he's clearly pretty dedicated to doing an insane amount of work. Or it could have been because he wanted to keep the secret that he was assigned female at birth and 
getting into a relationship or marrying whatever would jeopardize that. Mm-hmm. A lot of people remember him as being very, very flirtatious and kind of presenting himself as a ladies' man. But we don't have any, like, specific women that he oh, is connected yeah. to. It's just kind of like at parties he would tell stories about how he'd been, like, a real ladies' man in his youth. <laughs> um, he does sound like a bit of a jerk. He does sound like a bit of a jerk, yeah. <laughs> and that's something that his biographies, like, really make a lot of as well, mm-hmm. uh, you know, treating it as him kind of trying too hard to present himself as a man and stuff like that. I mean, there are a lot of men out there who are talking themselves up at parties. Like, yeah. It <laughs> doesn't I, have to be about their I don't assigned think sex. It, yeah, makes this, like, evidence of him, you know, faking it a bit too hard and therefore not being a genuine man or whatever these bogus trying to insinuate. So, yeah, like, I, I don't know. I assume he wasn't actually – a huge ladies' man, but or maybe you know he was a flirt, but it yeah. never had any kind of yeah, exactly. Like I, I guess flirting with people at balls is kind of its own like enjoyable experience <laughs> to people, particularly as James is clearly someone who's like fairly kind of like ostentatious and proud of his own wit. Yeah, it all paints a cohesive picture of a person. Yeah. So as you have already pointed out. There is a history of people claiming romantic motivations for James because of their perceptions of him as a woman. Yeah. Claiming, for example, that he'd gone into the army to follow a soldier that he was in love with. This just isn't true. Okay. They were just There's like, no I, evidence. I don't understand why someone I think of as a woman would go into the army. I guess the only motivation a woman can possibly have is men because that's how yes. they conceptualize the world. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, we discussed this exact thing. You went in this episode, but me oh, and I cool. discussed not this exact thing, but a similar thing when we did saw Juana Inez de la Cruz last week and she went into a convent and biographers were like, yeah, it was because of a failed relationship she had with a man. So, like, obviously she went into a convent because of that. And we're like, there's no evidence of that. That never happened. Mm. Yeah, I haven't listened to that episode. I don't. I don't listen to this podcast. <laughs> I actually saw it in my Spotify feed, and I read the thing, and I was like, "Oh, that sounds interesting." I'm like, wait a second. And I was like, wait, that—that's me. <laughs> anyway, so in Dupree's and Dronfield's case, their understanding of James and Charles's relationship as romantic definitely ties in very strongly with their gendering James as a woman. Mm-hmm. So they say, at some point, Lord Charles must have sensed that James was female. Why? Why must Lord Charles have sensed that? (laughs) Elsewhere, he certainly knew James's secret, and whether or not there had been any sexual relationship between them, he must have recognised her courage and understood the extraordinary pressures on her. Whatever he knew, Charles Henry Somerset loved this woman. Okay, but do they have any evidence of that statement that, like, Charles no. certainly knew James' secret? <laughs> no, like, their belief that Charles knew is stated as being self-evident, which whenever people state things as self-evident, it's a really clear indication that they don't have any evidence. Yeah. Like, is it just, like, they were close, therefore he must have known? Yeah, I-, I think so. Like, it seems to me it's based on this understanding that, like, if Charles was close to James, and especially if he was in love with James, he must have known about James's assigned sex. And it's therefore used as this, like, implicit evidence that James was a heterosexual woman, and that Charles either knew this and fell in love with James's true self, which is very much how to Bruce and Dronfield understand James's female identity. Yeah. Or that Charles was able to fall in love with James because he sensed even subconsciously that James was a woman. So we're also understanding Charles as like avidly heterosexual here. Yeah. So we're just not even considering the possibility, like even if we are considering the possibility that Charles and James were in a relationship, we're not considering the possibility that that made Charles gay. No. Or, you know, bi, yeah. I guess. Like obviously he did love his wife. Very yeah. Much. So Charles definitely is interested in women as far as we can tell. Yeah. Like he had that like love match 
etc. Yeah. But like, you know. Charles can also be interested in men. Charles can have a relationship with James that is not predicated on Charles understanding James as a woman. Yeah, it's possible. And yeah. like, obviously, vice versa, James can have a relationship with Charles that is not predicated on James mm. being a woman. And also, I think that like, even if Charles did find out and Charles did fall in love with James and it was reciprocated and, and Charles's understanding was that this relationship is heterosexual, that doesn't mean that James agreed. Yeah. Like, that's not really any evidence of anything regarding James's own gender and or sexuality. Yeah. Like, ultimately, all of that is very interesting. It has a lot of implications for a lot of different aspects of James's identity in life, but none of those can really be claimed with surety. So I, I'm not going to make any hard decisions about what was going on there. Yeah. In 1826, Charles was relieved of the post of governor and returned to England. In August of 1828, the Army Medical Department informed James that after 12 years on the Cape, he would now be posted instead to Mauritius. This isn't like, you know, a punishment or anything. It just happens. That's just what happens when you're an army doctor. Yeah. Yeah. He sailed for Mauritius in September and passed a fairly uneventful year there, about which we will say nothing. Okay. (laughs) Until he learned that Charles was dangerously ill. Without leave, James abandoned his post, and on the 27th of August, 1829, he boarded a ship for England. Oh. In December, he arrived in London and visited Charles the same day. Only after he saw Charles did he then report to the Army Medical Department. It's like, hey guys, I'm in England, surprise, it's me. (laughs) So a probably apocryphal account of this meeting is recorded by Charles Dickens. (laughs) I didn't expect to see Charles Dickens today. Yeah, so Charles... Oh no, we've got two Charles's. Dickens. So Dickens wrote an account of James's life for a literary periodical he ran, allegedly from the recollections of someone who knew James during his life. This was after his death. I'm pretty comfortable just deciding that this is like nonsense. Okay. Based on that information. <laughs> Okay, yeah. Dickens depicts James facing the interview with unapologetic swagger. <laughs> that does seem in character for yeah, James, it does. to be fair. it does. I mean, maybe he did have a source, you know, but I'm yeah. like certainly not willing to be like, oh, yeah, seems legit. This is definitely a fact. Yeah. You know, like I'm sure that if you're a scholar of Dickens, you can kind of get a sense of like how he generally approached this sort of thing. And Dupreece and Dronfield did call it a partly fictionalized biography. Mm-hmm. So like, you know. Alarm bells. (laughs) In Dickens' account, which I'm going to tell you for no other reason than it's a lot of fun, (laughs) the director asked him why he'd returned without leave, and he replied, running his fingers through his hair, well, I've come home to have my hair cut. (laughs) Due to the influence of the Somerset family, James suffers no consequences for this. Oh, well, uh, good for James. Good for James. James has some powerful friends, and it's doing him well. (laughs) It is doing him well. We've discovered the secret to life. It's nepotism. Yeah. He received a new posting in Jamaica, but first he remained in England to care for Charles. I wonder if Charles knew he was coming. I don't know. Or if Charles was like, yeah, I do miss James. He's in Mauritius. And then James walked in one day and Charles was like, is this a fever dream? (laughs) (laughs) So Charles's condition was actually stable at this point, but he was suffering from shortness of breath and he was most likely suffering from congestive heart failure. Mm Mm-hmm. This, like, basically everything was poorly understood at the time, and James could only try to alleviate the symptoms. He stayed in England to attend to Charles over the course of 1830 as he gradually became more and more unwell. Charles eventually passed away on the 20th of February, 1831. On the 26th of February, a funeral was held. By his own request, it was a very small one, and the only non-family member in attendance was James. 
Writing to a mutual friend of his and Charles after the funeral, James said, I've ended into detail as you wish, but I'm unable of doing justice to my more than father, my almost only friend. So that's all I have. I am fond of James. I don't know if he's like a nice man. Yeah. But, you know. (laughs) But that's okay. People don't have to be nice in history. That's true. He did do a lot of good reforms of, you know. We don't need to summarize his life because we will return to it in our next episode. That's true. So you can still spend some time forming your opinion of James. Mm -hmm. I do hope you'll come back and listen to that episode. We'll talk about many things. We'll have a lot of trans discussion. There'll be some more stuff about his time in the army. And most importantly, I will tell you about some pets. Oh, good, Mm. good, good. (laughs) But for now, with that, we've been Queer as Fact. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. If you liked this episode, you can find more of our episodes on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever good podcasts are found. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts in particular, we would really appreciate it if you would leave us a review and a rating out of five stars to help us find a wider audience. If you want to find us on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact, and you can also email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com. If you would like to support us financially, you can buy our merch on Redbubble or support us on Patreon. We're doing a lot of cool stuff for Patreon supporters at the moment. I feel you can get behind the scenes info of what's coming up next for Queer as Fact. You can vote in polls. You can pretty soon get some bonus content, episodes that we're not releasing to the public. So that's exciting. Uh, And those will be out for literally just $1 a month. If you want to find more information, if you want to find links to any of that stuff that we've mentioned here, you can go to our website, which is queerasfact.com. If you don't want to do any of that stuff, that's fine too. You can just sit tight and we will be back on the 15th of October when we'll be finishing off our discussion of the life of Dr. James Barry. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you then.